This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. This is the show where uh, we take your toughest maintenance questions and we do our very best to answer them. So if you have a question, email us at uh, podcasts at aopa.org to get on the show. Make sure and follow and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to um, get on our email list for our monthly newsletter and lots of other good stuff, easiest way to do that is to text uh, the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. And uh, your phone will ask you for your name and uh, email address, and it'll automatically put you on our mailing list. So text Savvy, S-A-V-V-Y to 33777 to put yourself on the list. So we're just recording this in early January. And uh, I don't know if you guys were following this um, recent crash at Haneda, Japan, between an Airbus A350, a Japan Airlines Airbus uh, that was landing, and a Dash 8 that was uh, a Coast Guard airplane that was on the runway. Really horrific um, pictures. Um, the most the amazing thing. amazing. Oh, yeah. They had, you know, surveillance video of, of the, you couldn't really tell who hit who, but you saw the fireball and then the the um, Airbus sliding down the runway. Looks like the nose gear collapsed. Um, the amazing thing is there's over 300 people on that Airbus and they all got out with 12 injuries, which I'm not surprised, you know, down the, the slides. grandmothers and handicapped people jumping down the slides. Yeah, but... Uh, it's just unbelievable that all those people got out of that plane. It's a real tribute to the back-end crew, you know, who are not there to serve you drinks. They're there to keep you safe you in an emergency. <laughs> it's interesting. One of the news commentators yesterday commented that they evacuated the airplane in like 90 seconds. And, well, but that's the certification. If I if I remember right, when they build an airplane like a Airbus A380 with two decks and the whole bit, no matter the size of the airplane, they have to be able to evacuate it. I think it's 90 seconds. I could be wrong. But I remember back in, in my airline days, it's like once every 18 months, we had to actually do this process. And then we had a Hawker Siddeley 748. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's like a, a Convair 44 passenger turboprop. And so it would always be this big party because Almost all of the Air Illinois employees would come and show up because we had to get 44 people in this they airplane. They had pizza. They served pizza afterwards. So. And and more. But <laughs> anyway, because this would always happen in the middle of the night. And I think the oldest person at the company, other than 
a handful of the most senior people were like 25. You know, the, the whole maintenance department was 25 or younger. Anyway, so they would, and the slides, they'd oil them down. So you could actually <laughs> slide down the slides. Oh. And uh, it, people were in their swimsuits and everything else. And the FA would be there to make sure we could actually evacuate this airplane and in 90 seconds. And it was always a hoot. <laughs> <laughs> so the, and then a party. Was this like an ATC error that? Well, I don't want to sign blame yet, but it looks like the airplane was cleared to taxi down to the runway and it taxied out onto the runway. But again, it's very preliminary. I'm getting all this from my, you know, my um, ATP husband who drinks this stuff 24-7. But he also said something interesting. So imagine this, the nose gear collapses, the airplanes, the, the Airbus sliding down the runway like a big not a tail dragger, opposite a tail dragger. And then <laughs> nose they dragger. <laughs> nose dragger. And then they stop and the and the, the emergency chutes pop out. And the ones in the front are pretty shallow because the nose is close to the ground, yeah, right? right? So you the don't slide very fast. Very steep. The ones in the back are really steep and probably people got hurt going out the back. The other interesting thing that he said was that one of the engines on one side was not shut down. Yeah, the right one it kept and running. Yeah, which I don't know why the cockpit crew should have shut it down. Maybe they couldn't. I don't know. But um, the back end crew had the presence of mind to not open those doors and send people out because there are, you know, chutes that go in front of the wing. And that could have been horrible. I mean, if you remember the um, San Francisco crash, um, it was a Singapore Airlines or something where everybody got out of the airplane, but then people were run over in the dark by emergency responders. You yeah, know? that was horrible. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, this happened at night and nobody was hurt on the ramp that, I, that I've heard of. So The only injuries were the, I think, all but one of the crew and the Coast Guard airplane were killed and one is seriously injured. The pilot. The pilot, yeah. Survived. Survived. Yeah. But it's amazing. I think it's 376 people. Yeah. I, I, can you? Huge and I saw a video. And, and the airplane burned? Oh, oh completely. Yeah. It's gone. So that's another interesting thing. You These think composite, it burned because the engine wasn't shut down? or No, because the think? wing got broached and the fuel went all over. Yeah, there's luckily, fuel everywhere. It was, it was a trans, it was um, within Japan flight. So it didn't have a lot of fuel and it was landing, not taking off. Usually that's worse, but... Still, there was a lot of fuel. That was what caused the fireball. It was a huge fireball. And that, uh, contrary to popular belief, that composite stuff burns pretty darn well. So the whole thing was consumed and it took them a long time to um, put the fire out, which is a data point for Boeing and Airbus on these all composite airframes. They do burn. Be a lot of studies on that. But it sounds like maybe it, start, it was a slow start to the burn. There was a lot of smoke in the back end. Uh, there's video from passengers milling about, gathering their suitcases. Yeah, <laughs> yeah instead of leaving everything behind. But, um, but I mean, it must have been a pretty organized evacuation. I, I mean, those guys, th that back end crew, are just they're heroes getting those people out. Absolutely. It's it's I hate flying they got everybody airlines. far <laughs> enough away from the airplane before it caught yeah. fire. Huh? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's just amazing. So that was a Christmas gift. I mean, I'm really sad for the Dash 8 crew. That's very sad. They were flying supplies to the um, tsunami and um, the earthquake yeah. victims. And what happened to the Dash 8? Oh, it's gone. I mean, it's, it was mashed up. I don't know specifically, but it took a pretty hard hit. So could have been a lot worse. I mean, collisions on the ground are never 
landing, you know, takeoff collisions, never very pretty. Very high energy impact. Our first question is from Chris, who's trying to turn up the heat. How are you doing, Chris? Good to have you on the show. Doing great. Hello, and thanks for taking my question. We have a 2003 um, Super Decathlon, and it's really cool. And that's the problem. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) So we actually have a hard time getting the oil temperatures up to 165 or 180 degrees Fahrenheit in crews. Uh, The CHTs tend to run from 270 to 325 degrees. I know others might be really jealous of this problem, but this seems really cool to us. The oil temperatures seem to hover in the 150 degree range a lot. And in the Georgia winters, we cover the oil cooler with some uh, aluminum tape. Uh, We took the tape off for the summer, but we still had the low temperatures. So I'm thinking about putting it back on. And I understand that it's ideal to get the oil up to 165 to 180 to boil off the water in the oil. We just had the engine rebuilt two years ago because the camshaft was worn due to corrosion on on the inside of the engine. And uh, we don't ever want to have to do that again, of course. We do see a large delta between the different cylinders. We have an Electronics International gauge and shows us the EGT and CHT. You can click over and see one at a time. And if you and sometimes it gives a warning that there's a big delta between the different cylinders, but uh, a lot of times you'll have one that's 270 and one that's 325, and I don't know if that's a problem. But our mechanic doesn't seem to be too worried about any of this. You didn't have to pay for the camshaft. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> so the oil temperature gauge didn't seem all that responsive, but in this last annual we did in November. They took it out and put it in boiling water to test it, and that seemed to clean it off, and it seems to be slightly more responsive um, and move around a little bit more. Well, did they do that to clean it off or just to verify that it was reading a proper temperature? We were just wondering if the gauge, if the numbers we were seeing were real. Right. Sure, but I've never heard of it cleaning it off would make it work better. Yeah, so that was just one theory. I don't know if it cleaned oil out of the inside or some varnish on the outside. Don't know, but that was just a theory. Okay. Yeah. So is there any way to know if the Vernatherm is working properly? So we have, it's a Lycoming AEIO 360 H1B. Don't know that it runs this cool for everybody else, but it does for us. And like our mechanic said to me, is like, well, see that Cessna over there? Look at the size of the, cooling intakes on the front of your cowling, they're like this, and the Cessna is like this, and that's running a 180-horsepower engine too. And uh, I don't know if that was just done for low-speed aerobatics or something, but or just old-school design, so he thinks maybe that's why we're getting a large differential and just overly cooled. But you can't change that because you're talking certified airplane. You can't really change the size of the, the holes in the cowling, unfortunately. Uh, and I think they are there because, yeah, I mean, that engine on uh, that airframe needs a lot of cooling just because it, it's going to do a lot of high power, low airspeed operations. Well, let, let's a couple of different things to focus on. For, let's first of all, focus on the, on the oil temperature problem. And it's, it's, it's actually worse than what you said, Chris, because where we really want to see the oil temperature is somewhere between 180 and 200. Um, 165 is way too low. It is certainly permissible to block off 
part of the oil cooler if that's if that's what it takes. You can check the vernatherm, right? By doing the same thing you did with the yeah, oil put, temperature sensor. Putting it sensor. in, in right. water and, and, and watching when the little wax capsule expands and pushes the poppet out. Also, with the vernatherm out, you can inspect the, 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 the cone, the poppet, and, and the seat to make sure that they look like they're making good contact. But, uh, you know, if the oil temperature is, is running too low, the, the vernatherm should be wide open and be bypassing as much oil as it possibly can. So it sounds like maybe the you just have more oil cooling than than what's needed, and I would probably experiment by by blocking off the oil cooler until you can get the temperatures where necessary. the The temperature gauge is reading the oil at the coolest part of the cycle, typically right after it exits the oil cooler, and the oil will heat up typically by about 40 degrees as it goes through the engine and, and hits hot things like the bottoms of pistons and so on. And so the object of the game is that whatever the oil, whatever the oil temperature gauge reads plus about 40 degrees Fahrenheit should be above the boiling point of water. And of course, the boil, boiling point of water d depends on what altitude you're at. So if you fly up at a high altitudes, then lower oil temperature is acceptable because the boiling point of water is lower. But if you're flying down low, which you most like, likely are in the decathlon, then then you want the oil temperature to be... So that's why the bottom of that range is Hopefully 180. At, at 180 or so or, or more. So I have two clarifications on what you were saying. So... This is aerobatic, so it's an inverted oil system. Mm -hmm. But the way the oil goes through the inverted oil system, and maybe it doesn't even do it in normal horizontal flight, but would that system affect the temperature reading because it exists or near where the uh, temperature is read? No, I have an inverted system on my Skybolt. And I, I, I think the oil, the inverted system just talks about where the supply comes from the engine back into the, the sump, how the sump... How, how it when, gets into the oil pump. Yeah, how it gets into the pump. So when, the, when, you're, when you're level, straight and level, it's drawing uh, oil from the bottom of the sump, like normal airplanes. But when you're upside down, the bottom of the airplane becomes the top of the airplane and it draws oil from the top of the engine to the oil. It's just, it's just changing the supply to the oil pump, like Mike said. You're still picking off the temperature after the cooler. The cooler is still getting, whether it's upright or upside down, the cooler is still getting oil from the same place. So that shouldn't have any effect. Another quick recommendation, if you're not already doing it, is um, I'm a big fan of using CamGuard to, to help inhibit corrosion on the cam. Yes, we're uh, believers in the cam guard. We use it religiously. Um, yeah. The other question I, I had was talk about getting the engine up to temperature, boil that water off. But at least to a certain extent, the engine is an enclosed volume, so boil all the water you want, but aren't you just making a pressure cooker, keeping the steam on the inside engine? No, no, it's going, it's going out the breather. Well, but it the breather... It goes out the engine breather. 
And the breather in this case is it's a slobber pot for that. It's it's part of the inverted system. So there's an oil separator basically, and it sends the um, oil mist and whatever oil doesn't, you know, go back into the engine, it sends it out the t- the tail or out the what, exit. What of that. did you call that? A slobber pot? Yeah, that's what the aerobatics crew. They call, it, it looks like a can, like a coffee can. That sounds like it, something I would say. That it, was well, not sophisticated. It's, it's at called all. a slobber pot, and and it's a it's it's just a big <laughs> air oil separator, and it and it includes any vapors coming out of the engine, so your water vapor is exiting that way. And you'll often notice that the stuff that comes out of the slobber pot is isn't pure oil. It's like gloppy. What's the word when oil gets um, mashed in with uh, water? Um, it's it's looks like snot. It's awful stuff. Yeah, it's awful. And, stuff. and it's full of acids and stuff. Yeah. It's really not the kind of thing you want to go back. And <laughs> slobber. It's slobber. <laughs> it, it just sounds odd. Anytime Colleen says something like slobber pot. Because I could say worse it things. Sounds, <laughs> I know, but it sounds like something that would be said in Tennessee, not well, in California. Chris, exactly. I mean, Chris, that's what they call it, right? Have you heard that term? I've not, just, but I understand it because it's just putting foam in there, right? And gurgling foam, right? It's it's nasty stuff, like Mike said. Yeah. So you want it out, <laughs> and that's what it does. It it exits the airplane somewhere. So yeah, the airplane the the engine is vented. Yeah, it's vented, so never fear. There's a place for those vapors. Yeah, and you'll see on a typical aircraft, you'll see a a small puddle of that fluid on the hangar floor right below the vent tube after it's been sitting there a day or so. A slobber puddle. A slobber pot. Hey, if if you put an open bowl on the floor to catch all this stuff, could we call that a slobber pot? Not the same. <laughs> don't put it back in the engine. Don't yeah, don't put <laughs> Use it back a gas in the jar. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> anyway, hopefully you can get those temps up a little bit. All right. Well, Check thank you. It sounds like I just need to run more aluminum tape for now and then test the uh vernitherm when we get a chance. Yeah, you don't you don't have cal flaps or anything on that on the decathlon, right? So it, you really can't modulate the cooling system at all other than with Blocking off the oil cooler and stuff. Or fly sideways. Yeah, sounds like fun. <laughs> I would think flying inverted would do wonders for lubricating the cam, wouldn't it? Uh, it would. Yeah. Temporarily. Maybe you could do that all the time. Yeah, park it that way in the hangar. <laughs> <laughs> Put some wheels on top. And and Chris, you did talk about um, the disparity in CHTs for your IO360. I've got an IO360 in my Cardinal, and I've always had a 60-degree spread. Number three for the Cardinal is the hottest, and it's just so consistent, and it's all air cooling. It's just very difficult to get air through that back cylinder, um, through the fins there. And it will eventually affect the cylinder. The rings will start to stick or coke up or something like that, but it'll go for quite a while, but it is... It's not dangerous. It's just something that a lot of us live with. So, all right. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate yeah, yeah. Uh, that. It's nice to talk to all three of you. Sure. Good questions, nice to Chris. You, Chris. Good to have you on the show. Thank you. Take care. Our next question is from Curtis, whose mechanic is telling him some alarming things about his ELT. Hey, Curtis. Hey, good afternoon. Okay, so, and actually, uh, the mechanic in this case, uh, I think, is a strong advocate, great guy. He's independent, 
I guess starting, I, I was just coming into my first annual uh, with a 1981 Mooney M20J. Pretty good airplane. I mean, uh, he the same mechanic who had done the pre-buy. So the annual, I had this elected to do a few things. I replaced all 11 shock discs. That was a shocker. Uh, yeah. cost. <laughs> and uh, had the prop re, uh, resealed and repainted and some other things. And so he informed me a few days into the annual, said, hey, your ELT battery is out of date. I said, great. He's like, Unfortunately, it's a a brand that I can't just replace the battery. I got to send it to a shop. Mm-hmm. So I'm out in the East Coast, Eastern North Carolina. So uh, we sent it to a shop in the middle of the United States. I get a service invoice back with three options, uh, none of which of them included replacing the battery. Of course, there is the, <laughs> the the lowest cost was a $180 evaluation fee, and then after that, it was we couldn't. Do some expensive repairs on your current ELT, but we really recommend you upgrade to this new ELT that's over a thousand dollars. So he said, My standby current tested high. There was a number uh, of the value. I didn't recognize what uh, units of value it was, but he said it tested high for 42.7 units high on the standby current. Not amps. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's one big battery. So I did some digging on the forums, the Mooney forums, this and that. Uh, apparently, it can test for high standby current when they disconnect the antenna, some other mm. things. Uh, but long story short, I called the salesman. The salesman said, oh, well, I can't deal with you. Your mechanic is the customer. I can only deal with him. Mm. <laughs> and so then we get in like this three-way triangle. Uh, wow. I called the mechanic. He's like, yeah, I'll call him and tell him. You know, And so then the service manager or whatever we want to call him calls me back. I uh, said, so, well, I talked to your mechanic and um, yeah, he, he, he authorized me to talk to you now. So it's okay. <laughs> and I'm like, well, great. It's my airplane and it's my ELT. So wow, it turned into a very like, well, out of good, good conscience and safety, I just, I can't certify this ELT. It's uh, you know, you could, it could be dead in two days after I, if I just replace and then I caught him, he said, um, I've got it on the bench tester right now, and it's testing high at uh, 87.2 gigawatts or whatever measurement <laughs> of value they have. And I said, well, that's funny. The, the service invoice you have here says it was 42.7. So which is it? And he says, uh-huh. oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I said, I had another unit on my bench test. I was like, do all units that come in get, get. tested for high standby current? I bet they all do, don't they? Mm-hmm. And uh, he, mm-hmm. he kind of started. He's like, okay, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'll do. Uh, I'll, I'll do all the repairs for you for free, just this one time. So, what what brand ELT is this? A Canand. I have no experience with Canand. I, I actually, I pulled a Colleen on this one. I actually oh, looked no, it up. Oh no, you studied. I you looked, looked it, it up. up. Okay, so did and I. <laughs> it, it, it's a French unit, and the 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 manual is online. And it's kind of interesting that, that there's, Curtis, there, there's two diametrically opposite answers. There's the answer if you feel like you have to follow the manual. And then there's the answer if you feel like you have to follow the regulations. <laughs> and they come to very different answers. The manual says that battery replacement has to be done by a Part 145 uh, avionic shop 
the regs say that replacing a battery is a preventive maintenance item that an owner is allowed to do. Owner can do, absolutely. The manual does not have any airworthiness limitation section. So everything in the manual from a regulatory standpoint is a mere suggestion. It is not a requirement. The only way it could be a requirement would be if there's an airworthiness limitation section in the manual, which there isn't, or if there's an AD, which I don't think there is either. So you can feel free to blow off the manual, replace the battery yourself if you can get a replacement battery. If you can find it, yeah. The irony is Aircraft Spruce sells the battery kit. But Great. Again, so, so buy one and plug wow. in and you're good to go. Why did your mechanic decide he couldn't do this? Well, it would invalidate the warranty if you do it yourself, I'm sure. That's that's typical. Was it's it like working on a gar it's like opening a garment oh, radio. It's not gonna be under warranty. Yeah, it's not well, under I wouldn't warranty. worry about the warranty. Yeah. yeah but long yeah. story short, in, in in five years when I have to replace it, I'll probably just buy a new ELT. There you I go. <laughs> Get one that has uh, field replace easier field replaceable batteries. The, the salesperson was very clear. He said, now in five years, when you send it in for a replacement again, a test for high standby current, I'm not going to do this for you. And I'm like, oh. now, well, you, you, you well say, the sales guy say, won't be there in five years. When you say years, the salesman, so. are, you talking, are you talking about a guy at the avionics shop? At the service station. Or where did you send it to? Uh, Mid-Continent. Oh, yeah. Mid-Continent. Okay. Oh, yeah. 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 They're a yeah. good shop. Yeah, yeah, they I mean, are a good they're, shop. They're, they're good guys, but they're going to follow the manual. That okay? they're just they doing have what to they follow the manual. Manufacturer you don't says. have to follow the manual, and it's and it's your ELT. <laughs> I asked. I said, "Will you please just send put a battery in it? Period, and send it back. <laughs> just put the battery." And he he wouldn't do it. He said he can't do that, but he could send you a battery, or you could buy it from Spruce, which just is probably buy it better. From Spruce, yeah, and do and do it yourself, and you're perfectly legal. It's a preventive maintenance item. See, Curtis knew he would get this answer from us. That's why he called us. He's like, I know who can tell me I'm okay here. <laughs> so in, in Mid-Continents, not really in their defense, but in explanation, when I send a piece of equipment to a remote shop for repair, a radio, an engine, whatever it is, I am that shop's customer. They don't have any clue who you are. So if you call out of the clear blue and say, that's my ELT. I want you to do so-and-so. It's totally appropriate for them to say, well, you are not my customer because you're not the one that sent it to me. You're not the one that's paying me to do this work. So I have to go check with my customer first before I know whether or not you are even somebody involved in this. He has, has no way to know who that is. Your name isn't on the invoice. Your name your is mechanics. not on the invoice yeah. anywhere. So, uh, that was appropriate for them to do that. But everything after that is also appropriate. As a 145 repair station, they do have to follow that manual. Yeah, they're and, very regulated. Yeah, yeah, they're very regulated. Okay. So word of advice, just just keep it in-house and don't even send it off next time. Yeah. You're still legal. Yeah, it never occurred to me to send an ELT off to have the batteries replaced. Now, if it had if it had stuff written in French on the side, I <laughs> I might look at it a little differently. <laughs> yeah, well, the manual was in English, and it was, and it did say that battery replacement has to be done by a Part One Forty Five Repair Station. 
I'm reading it. It doesn't, the same it stuff. doesn't say <laughs> anything about about standby current and stuff like that, but that, that, that that's probably something but that that's not owner facing information. That's yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. My last question, when, uh, if it's appropriate to ask, when can we expect the audio version of Aircraft Ownership 1 or 2 to be oh, out? Oh, you're killing me. <laughs> We're um, working hard. <laughs> yeah, Aircraft Ownership 1, the, the audio is, 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 what, about three quarters done? We're, I have two more parts, about eight chapters to transscribe yeah, and send off to we're, the reader, we're making, and we're, we're good to go. Good, good progress on it. I would say in February, probably it's going to the publisher. I don't know. There's like still process after we finish the recordings. Yeah, but, it's usually a couple of weeks after but we we're close. submit all the audio files before. Uh, it I was working across up. the holidays on it, Curtis. That's how close we are. So Very exciting. I, yeah. I, um, I'll, I'll save. I have so many other questions, but I'll save them for I, I am a proud uh, savvy QA customer and uh, yeah. took advantage of updating that. And, and uh, even though I have a 20 year aviation career, I'm learning so much uh, getting back into this. So. Are you at Cherry Point? Seymour uh, Johnson. Oh, Seymour Johnson. Oh, very cool. Okay. And now a two year airline pilot as well. So Oh, awesome. And a Mooney owner. Now a Mooney owner. That's cool. First airplane? My, my first, I swore I'd never do it because uh, when I was a single engine CFI, right, I, I was like, this is stupid what all these people do. I was, I was a poor CFI. I didn't understand how they uh, made their way through life paying for these airplane bills because I got to see them. And I was like, yeah, I will never yeah. do this. Here yeah. I am. And here you are. It's an honor to talk to you guys. I, I, can't, I appreciate what you guys are doing so much for uh, those of us who've made their foray into aircraft ownership. Uh, <laughs> Thank Whether you. that's a wise decision or not, I don't no, know. No, it is. It's, You're going to no, love it. it's a it. terrible decision. Well, we, it, we've, we've which, survived it, which, it so far. So. We have, yeah. yeah. No, it's a great decision. It, great it's a great airplane. decision, but, you know, it makes no sense at all. <laughs> that's most great decisions. So enjoy, the, enjoy the ride. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Thanks, Curtis. Take all care, right. Curtis. Bye-bye. Happy New Year. Okay, we got two great letters for this episode. The first deals with the uh, test of the AOPA Baron and the two fuels. Um, this is from Joe. He said, I just listened to the most recent pod 95 with the IO 520s. Mike had an idea to make a jig from some other valve covers. I wonder if it would be possible to drill a hole in the valve cover, thread it, and then have a removable plug in which to take the measurements from. This way you wouldn't have to remove the valve cover every time you wanted to take a measurement. Just a thought. <laughs> that's, that's actually pretty cool. Unfortunately, the valve cover, because all those kind of thoughts went through my brain, the valve cover is not, there's not enough material there to do that accurately, to thread it. It's very thin. Well, it's, and, and what's worse is uh, we determined... It's not the right angle. We determined that you can't really take the measurement accurately with the rocker installed. So the rocker's going to have to come off, which means the valve cover has to come off. Uh, you know, w- when we started... Looking at this, the, the, our first thought was to let, let's see if we can do it without removing the rocker, and it just turned out not to be possible. There's not a there's not a flat measuring surface on the rocker that you could use. And it's more the geometry than it is the material on the rocker. Yeah, and the the valve is at this this strange angle, and the valve cover doesn't have any surface that matches that angle. So it, it would be a big thing. But what we're what I'm doing on the jig that I'm building is there'll be three holes. One will be in the center of the valve, and then there'll be two 
that will line up with the top of the valve springs, the cap, just for data points that we can make those measurements as well to find out if we can use those at some point in the future as a reference as well. I think that the valve stem is you the mean gold standard. To, measuring to the rotator cap. The rotator the, cap. The rotocoil. Yeah, yeah, the top of the rotocoil. There's, there is flat surface, but I don't know how repeatable that is, but that's the point of making, making those holes is find out if those are repeatable spots. Maybe you can use lasers, Paul, to get an accurate measurement. Ooh. Laser beams. That's, that's pretty awesome. Don't know where that tool is, but <laughs> as soon as you find Might it, fry your it valve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. Um, all right. So this is from Steve. He said, Hey guys, I just wanted to chime in related to the Italian tune up <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I've worked as a technician on Volvo cars for 20 years, and the term Italian tune up is a well known strategy to restore compression on mid to late 90s five cylinder motors that, that have developed excess carbon in the cylinders. By way of running the car down the highway at 55 and second gear at 5,000 RPM for 15 minutes. Oh, <laughs> he said this was even adopted for a short time from Volvo engineers. And every time it worked. Ah, that's hilarious. Uh, he goes, I know it's not aviation really, but I thought I'd chime in. <laughs> By the way, he said it would change the compression from about, he says, plus or minus 50 PSI all the way to 170. Wow. It worked every time. Wow. I like that idea. That sounds like fun. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to make it aviation related here. We bought a new truck, this is decades ago, uh, that we used here at the shop for recovering airplanes. And after well over a thousand miles, it was just pumping oil. It was, it was terrible. So dad and mom, which is an interesting thing, they went all the way to Colorado to pick up a 421, Cessna 421. And on the way back, dad had just had enough with his oil consumption. So he puts the truck, it's a, it's a Ford F-350. He puts it in second gear and he manually put it in second gear and just pushed the pedal all the way to the floor and drove it from Colorado to Tennessee oh in second gear at Redline. <laughs> it must it with noise canceling headsets in the oh, car. Well, I'm telling you, now, that truck wow. now has over 170,000 miles. It's in Nashville. My son-in-law uses it to drive construction equipment around. It hasn't used a drop of oil since. That's amazing. That's a great story. <laughs> I, I've had the same experience with, with airplanes. I, I remember when I, my, my second airplane was a Blanca Super Viking that I, that I bought. I bought, I, I bought it allegedly new, but it turned out that it, that, <laughs> that it wasn't exactly new. It had about 50 hours on it because it, they'd use it as a factory demonstrator. And I got this airplane with 50 hours on it, and it was burning oil like crazy. And I didn't know anything. I was totally an appliance operator back then. I, I didn't, hadn't done any wrenching or anything. So I consulted with an old gray beard mechanic um, in, in Plainview, Texas. And he, and he said, he said, go take that thing out over the Pacific Ocean, because he knew I lived in California. And 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 run it up and down the coast at about fifty feet with everything to the firewall, and uh, 
that that was back before we had TCAs and all the lettered airspace and all the stuff you had to stay out of. So you could you could do stuff like that. No birds or anything. And like uh, that. never <laughs> no never birds. never burned oil after that. And, and That's cool. since then, I've 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 rescued a couple of oil burning engines that that way, just running them real real hard. But it just means the rings didn't seat right. They like to run hard. If my engines feel best at the max prop rpm oh I just, that's why you they race, run right smooth. it's just to make yeah, the engines they, they, feel better when i dial <laughs> when I, I, I i stop climbing out and i dial my prop back it's like ugh, it's like ugh, it's not really as nice and smooth as it is when it's got lots of fuel and lots of yeah. rpm of course dave takes it a little bit too far but tell dave that <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just did okay <laughs> does dave listen wait a minute no, he doesn't. He's yeah, too he lazy. Doesn't. He's like, I, I hear these people <laughs> talking all the time. Yeah. I had people a, walk up to him and say, I heard that you. And he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking about me again? <laughs> hmm. I had, had a guy call me, not a customer, but he called up and he's a friend of a customer. He was 182 and had like 300 hours on this engine. And it was using a quart every two hours on a 182. And he said, and I, I broke it in just, just like I was supposed to. Well, back up all the way, and I found out the way he broke it in, they said to run it at 75%. Well, he was at six or 7,000 feet, so he ran it at high RPM and very low manifold pressure. I'm like, well, no, that's exactly backwards. And anyway, I said to your, I tried to get him to run it just like you said. We don't have any oceans around here, so we can't get quite that low. And whenever I have somebody from Colorado, they say, how can I break in my engine? I say, fly to Kansas. Fly to Kansas, yeah. <laughs> so I tried to get him to do a low-altitude deal, and he did, but it, I think it was too far gone after 200-something hours. Oh, well. It was worth a try. Our next question is from Pierre-Louis, who is feeling the love from his new tuned exhaust. Go ahead, Pierre-Louis. Hello, everybody. Thank you. Thank you to take me on your show. It is a great pleasure for me. And I carefully listen to each of your podcasts. It's a great GA future improvement every month. On our aircraft, it's a Jodel Ambassadeur. It's a French aircraft, a DR-1050. We have a tuned exhaust system attached to our Continental O200A engine. It has an STC and is manufactured by Chabot in France. And we have been advertised that of 13% increase in the climb rate and 10% on the fuel consumption. Uh, we had a straight conventional exhaust system on our O200A before. And now, even if the climb rate improvement is difficult to measure as we didn't have proper measurements before, we can notice some fuel consumption reduction. But what we could directly notice, however, is that the engine was running like better balanced and especially at low RPM. Mm -hmm. The audible feeling is that we now have a six cylinder engine under our cowling. Mm -hmm. Now, as it sounds better, we have the feeling the endurance will be improved on our engine. Do we have some feedbacks of fatigue life on the engines with tuned exhaust systems in compared to the ones with straight exhaust systems? I have, a, I have an idea. So the tuned exhaust system gives you better performance and power increase, right? So more horsepower. So that means there's more, um, your cylinders are working harder, right? They're also 
working more efficiently, but they're working harder. So if anything, I would suspect a tuned exhaust would lower the lifetime of your engine because it's putting more um, stress on your engine. I disagree. I, yeah, I'm, ah, wondering, I'm wondering if you get... I stuck my uh, neck you're out You're getting there. more power because it's more efficient. More efficient? Not because it's working harder. You're actually not getting more power. You're just getting the power getting more to where bang you for your want buck. it, which is at the well, propeller. Really? Sure. Rather so it's a, than overcoming back pressure, which is yeah. really what the tuned exhaust is about. So it's that's, not that's working harder. With a, with a, with a working power smarter. exhaust system... The engine part of the engine's power is is being used to expel exhaust out of a restrictive exhaust system. It's, it's just, that's the, the the same the same energy that that might be used to spin a turbocharger if there was a turbocharger there. But but I I don't think that the cylinders are working any harder. If if anything, they're working a little less hard because because the the exhaust system is cooperating with what they're trying to do, which is to get all that nasty stuff out of the cylinder at the end of the combustion event. So it will increase the lifetime. I, I don't know theory. if it will increase it. I I think it's probably neutral. I don't And what think about vibration? Do you think he's got less vibration or Well, the vibration is going to be different because the exhaust pulses in theory all come out in sequence as opposed to coming out in jumbles. Syncopation. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that's what makes it feel so much better. It's not going to I don't think it's changing the rotational vibration at all, but it's certainly going to change the vibration of the engine. Anytime you can reduce vibration, smoothing it out in any way, it's better for everything on the airplane. Including the pilot. <laughs> Including the pilot, sure, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, we, we've mostly had experience with the power flow system and all the feedback that we have on the power flow system has been positive. I don't think there's any negatives, really. Unless you do the power flow, the tuned this, and the bigger pistons that. And, well, I remember we had one guy that had like five or six different changes to his engine. It's like we didn't even know what to do with it. <laughs> that can be problematic. Right, um, yeah. Be, be, because if you if you apply multiple STCs, you're supposed to ensure that 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 they are compatible with one another and there isn't any way to do that. That's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now now you make me want to get a tuned exhaust, Pierre Louis, after all that good feedback. In which of your three airplanes? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you're your legacy probably has a tuned exhaust of some I sort. I think it does, yeah. And Dave has flown with a tuned exhaust. I've thought about it on the Cardinal. Um, PowerFlow has a, a close relationship with the Cardinal community, and they they uh, support the Cardinals. And they, I think they were one of the first STC holders for the Cardinal. It's just cost. I just haven't done it because I'm going to milk this exhaust for all it's worth. It, before it, is, I upgrade. it is an expensive upgrade, there's no doubt. Yeah. But it's, I've heard great things about it, so that's interesting. So I stand corrected. Very good. Yeah, but I, I, I think the safe assumption is that, that, that it, will, it would have neutral effect on the engine as far as, as uh, any kind of uh, repetitive stress fatigue. But if it's reducing uh, vibration, it's probably good for a lot of things on the airplane. 
Well, thank you very much for your answer. Plus the airplane sounds better and performs better. So what's not to like about that? I have, I have a feeling that the, that the claims of 13% better climb and 10% better fuel is, is, are probably kind of optimistic. I wouldn't really expect to get that much out of it, but. Uh, yeah, they were even given, I think, 50 RPM increase uh, at the run-up check, oh. uh, but uh, we could not notice that. But uh, hmm. however, yeah, you can, the, the, be- the better improvement was really for, for the sound and vibration that we can mm-hmm. notice. And starting from that point, we, we, we had the doubt if it could, let's say, uh, uh, improve a little bit uh, the engine lifetime. Uh, yeah, as you said, should not be worse. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably in the in the good direction. Definitely worth. Good. Well, great question. I'm sure a lot of people are listening closely to this one. Tuned exhaust. Mm. So thank you very much. Thank you for calling, Pierre Louis. Nice to meet you. Nice to see you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Our next question is from Frank, who wants his airplane to stop acting like an old Volvo. Is this is this back to that? What was it? Uh, what is that? An Italian uh, overhaul that we talked no, about? No, no, it's tune not. Up. Italian tune-up. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, I enjoy your show every week, and uh, when I, I I listen to you when I work on the, the Yorktown ship here in Charleston. Oh, wow. I'm awesome. in Charleston, South Carolina. I fly mm-hmm. out of Mount Pleasant Airport, and um, we have a very active aviation community here. Mm-hmm. We get to meet the coolest people. Yeah. Is that where Bruce Landsberg is based? Yeah, I know Bruce is a friend oh. of mine. Yes, oh. sir. Oh, very <laughs> very cool. good. Wow. Yep, he, he educates us once in a while, so <laughs> we enjoy having Bruce. And he just retired from the NTSB. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. we'll see more of him now. Wow. So that's good. He'll get to fly more, and I get to fly. Yeah, and get to, he did get to commute up there to, to Washington. He never. No, he's. That I don't think much. he's messing that at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my question is: I, I have I bought a Rockwell 112 TC back in 1992, so I've been a long time owner. Wow! And I've wow. had this occasional problem, as you know, it's a a carbureted turbocharged engine. When I shut down, it's and it's in only in the summer when it's about over 90 degrees out, I start having problems with the engine dieseling, you know, where I cut the fuel mixture off and it keeps running. And I turn it off with the key. I was wondering if that's not a bad way to do it. But I, I, I looked up as much as I could on it, and I got a lot of different different thoughts on why it's doing that. And I was wondering what your thoughts would be. I think there's only one way it possibly can be doing that, and that's if the if the mixture valve in the carburetor is not shutting off the fuel flow completely. And you agree, Paul? Yeah. There, if if there's no fuel, there's no run on. It has to have fuel. Now I looked this up on the internet because I'm not an engine geek, and it said dieseling can occur if you have a buildup of carbon in the ignition chamber that's glowing after the engine's off. Well, but if it doesn't, you could glow all you want, but if there's no fuel to ignite, <laughs> nothing's uh, going to happen. Right. Okay. But the run on that you're looking at, uh, Colleen, is like from automotive engines. Yeah. That, sure. That right. was an automotive right. response. Yeah. In automotive engines, you shut them off by turning off the ignition system and you're not shutting the fuel off. So if Frank turns off the key, the engine will die. 
typically. Oh, okay. And that's got what it, got he it. said. Okay, he turns we have it off, a protection. He turns off the, the mags. Yeah. Got it. So yeah, his is running has, on because it still gets fuel. This has to be an fuel. issue in the carburetor, in, in the in the mixture control valve in the carburetor. So I think the, think the first thing you need to check before you get expensive is is <laughs> yeah. the rigging of the mixture control and to make sure that that when you're pulling the mixture to idle cutoff, it's actually going all the way to the to the stop on the carburetor end. And if if it is, and and you're still having this problem, then you're probably going to have to send in the carburetor. Could it be a leaking primer? Ooh. That's, That's a good. Possibility. Yeah. Yes. I had a good idea. Yay. That's a good yeah. <laughs> Good job. Always thinking. I don't fly a primered airplane, but I've heard of that causing problems. Yeah, yeah. That's, that is That's definitely Anything a that lets fuel into the combustion chamber after you've shut it Absolutely off. Absolutely right. Okay. That's okay. that's and that's an easy first place to start. How else would he see a leaking primer running too rich sometimes? Well, a leaking primer can do a lot of weird things. And the way you find out what it'll do is unlock your primer while the engine's running. And it, you will find out what your engine will do because some engines have uh, primer injectors on all the cylinders. Some have only on a few. Sometimes it'll suck air into the cylinders, which will make them run lean. And other times it'll make the cylinders run very, very rich. Yeah, mine mine is electric and it goes into one, two, and three cylinders. Oh, it's electric? Yeah, That's boost. interesting. Yeah. Oh. Well, Is that like a boost That's not likely, but... Matter of changing O-rings or something. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hmm. But what you could do is just cap all those off at the cylinder. Well, it, doesn't, it only happens in the summer and only after a flight, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah I, so, mean, I just flew it this morning and shoved hmm. right down. Yeah. Yeah. So... It's going to be hard to troubleshoot this with a strong feeling that you've resolved it because you won't know if you resolved it or if it was just one of those days where it wasn't going to be running on. Yeah. Yeah, but you're looking for fuel. Absolutely. All right. Well, I've been writing all this down. Maybe you could take the, <laughs> take the lines off the injectors and put a vacuum, a small vacuum on those and see if you get any fuel sucked through the primer. Not, I, I wouldn't oh, the have injectors any, for the priming system. Yeah, okay. I, okay. I don't have any clue how to do that. It's just first thought that hit my mind as a way to test that part of the system. Yeah, I'll, I'll run by my mechanic here. Hmm. A sunk he, float? He, he had thought it was something in the carburetor, just like Mike had said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That it must be still getting fuel. But Would that require I, I thought carb? I was just curious that it didn't do it in the winter when it's cold here. It's well, and when it's 50 degrees here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rub that in. <laughs> yeah. We have two seasons in Charleston, hot and hotter. Why does it, why is uh, this happen in the summer when it's hotter? What's going on? Why would it run on after shutdown only in the summer? I mean, it's obvious. It's a very marked observation. Yeah. He's, yeah. It, it has something to do with Air density, how much fuel is getting in versus how much air is there. So in the, in the winter when you've got, I don't know. Much drier. Uh, the fuel-air mixture is allowing air. combustion in the yeah. summer where it's not yeah. allowing combustion in the winter, I guess. Hmm. Interesting. We're, this is wild speculation mode. I can, I can yes. sense that. <laughs> we've, we've gone off the rails. The value of any answers after this point are, 
are so, very questionable. <laughs> but the, but the fix, if, if it is the carb and it's allowing fuel into the into the combustion chamber, is the fix to remove the carb and replace seals? Is that that's the expensive? If it's the carburetor. Okay, so we're hoping maybe so it is we the need, primer. We, you need to to troubleshoot it and to fault isolate it. So the the easiest way to fault fault isolate it is to disconnect the the, the primer. Yeah. Yeah, I think and the wait primer the is summer. the first place to go. Probably disconnect the tube at the outlet of the electric priming pump and 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 cap oh, it. Oh yeah, the one tube. Yeah, cap and then the pump. See if, then then see if the if the problem goes away. But you have to wait till the summer. To, to or do just that. look and see if it's leaking. I mean, could if, you pull a breaker on the primer? I mean, just not use it. Is it? Well, it's well, not. It's probably it's not, not being bad. operating. It's the, the 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 point is that. That somehow I don't know the construction. Oh, fuel's of, getting passed. Yeah, pump, Got but it. it. But it's it's supposed to not pass fuel when it's not running. I think just disconnecting the line out of the engine and letting it sit there for a bit and see if any fuel drips out of it that would tell you right off the bat. But it it might not drip out of it, Paul. But because the engine is trying to suck it out. That's what I was saying. Yeah. Apply yeah. a oh, suction. Okay. That's why I was talking about yeah, yeah, applying yeah. a light suction to the lines. Oh, okay. See. Got it. Yeah. Just, yeah. just put it in your mouth on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'll know really quickly yeah. if it worked. <laughs> no, don't do that. Yeah, that's nasty. Interesting, though. Boy, that's a long time to own a Commander. That's a great airplane. Yeah, it is. I've never flown in one. It's done its missions well. When I was younger and I flew a lot of trips, flew up and down the East Coast, and <laughs> I put put time on it then. And uh, now, now I'm not flying those long trips anymore but it's it's a good plane to just go up and sightsee yeah um, yep i appreciate y'all it's really really nice show thank Very you good we appreciate it frank yeah we have fun yep thanks for the call happy All new right, year you're welcome take bye-bye. care bye-bye well that's the end to another episode hopefully we got a couple things right this time Let us know and keep sending us your tricky questions. You can email them to podcasts at aopa.org. See you next month. Bye.